Good morning. It is good to see you guys here this morning. Um, I, it's interesting, as I was walking up and we were singing that song and the, the lines in that song saying that my heart is an open space, it strikes me as uh, particularly um, important this morning um, as we wrap up our series, Prone to Wander. Um, I want us to open our hearts and I want us to open our minds to the challenge that God may have before us um, as we reflect on the story, uh, a story in the book of Judges. Uh, I think a lot of times we can come to church and not allow ourselves to be fully challenged. Um, we come, we do our thing, and when something comes up, we may, uh, we may kind of uh, brush it aside, but I want to encourage you to open your hearts and your minds this morning because I think God has something very special for each of us as it relates to our individual lives, as it relates to our individual um, walk with Christ, because there's something very special about the walk we have, what we've been given. And so, uh, again, I just encourage you guys to open your hearts. Uh, I actually want to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just pray right now that as we step into your word, as we hear ideas or concepts that may challenge where we, where we currently sit, that we would respond, that our hearts would be open to what your spirit would have to say to us this morning, and that, Lord, as a result of it, we would emerge from the reflection uh, in joy because we know that you have challenged us um, because of your grace and your love towards us. In your precious name we pray, amen. 26 years, seven months, and seven days ago, I slipped this on my finger for the first time. And it has been on my finger ever since. And it is, stands as a, um, a marker. It stands as a, a symbol, a visual, every single day of the marriage that Elise and I entered into 26 years, seven months, and seven days ago. But the thing that I think we have to remember about our wedding rings is that um, it's not simply a commemoration uh, of an event. It, it's, it's not a trophy that is a remembrance of some bygone occurrence. Um, it's not meant to direct my mind backwards, um, to nostalgically celebrate some special time in my life. It's really meant to focus my mind daily, uh, focus my mind on the present and focus my mind on the future about the response I'm to have to the covenant I've engaged in. That it's not about the past. It's not about what took place. It's about what's going to happen today and what's going to happen tomorrow and what's going to happen every day of the rest of my life. Because I made a commitment, I made a covenant to my wife. Now, when we began our series, Prone to Wander, a study in the book of Judges, we opened it by looking at the last chapter of the book of Joshua, um, because it really kind of set the stage. It really kind of let us understand where the Israelites were at before they entered into the book of Judges. And in the last chapter of the book of jo Joshua, Joshua challenges the Israelites as to whether or not they were going to be faithful whether they were going to be faithful to God 
or wander from him to the gods of their neighbors. It's a conversation he says where, where he talks and he says, choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the challenge he laid out before them. And this is what their response was. The Lord, our God, we will serve. And his voice we will obey. In response to their response, it says, Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the tabernacle that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all his people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord that he has spoken to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. We read this when we started the series. And we read this to look at and see what Joshua did in response to the commitment to the covenant that the people made with God that day. Once, once Joshua received this commitment from the people that they're going to be faithful to God, faithful to the God of Abraham, the, the God who, who took them out of slavery in Egypt, that, that parted the Red Sea in front of them, that provided for them as they wandered in the desert for years and years and years, the God who, who parted the Jordan River so that they could enter into the promised land. The God who, 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 who knocked down the walls of Jericho so that they could take possession of the promised land. The God who had given them the promised land. They made a commitment, they made a covenant with him that day. And so Joshua said, we're going to mark that. And I'm going to put it in the statutes. I'm going to put it in the book of the law. And I'm going to put this big rock here, and it's going to stand as a testimony. It's going to testify that you made a promise to God, that you made a covenant with God. It was a marker that was put up. Not to be a commemoration. Not to be about looking backwards at what he did to testify to what they would do moving forward. But as we've discovered, they continued the wander. They opened the book of Judges in full commitment to live in this covenant relationship with God. But by the end of the book, the declaration about the people of Israel is, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Throughout the book, we, we, we continue to see the Israelites in this sin cycle. The cycle of, of, of living in devotion to God, wandering away from God, having this seeming moment of repentance in response to, to the trouble that came to them. God coming and answering them, them living faithful to God, them wandering away from God them feeling the effects of their sin, them coming to seeming repentance, 
And it goes over and over and over and over and over and over again. A cycle that we seem to fall into quite often. And it's a cycle that we're not supposed to live in. It's the cycle that, that, that Paul explains in Romans chapter 7. You know, it's that cycle where he says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I keep doing. The description that Paul has there is not of the life of the believer, but it's the life of us in our own humanity. That we in our own humanity are drawn by the flesh to do things that we're not supposed to do, that violate the, the law. But if all we try to do is live according to law and in, 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 under our own power and our own abilities, we're going to just keep sliding into this. And so Paul gives us the answer in Romans chapter 8. He says, no, we as Christians now have something different because of the work of Jesus Christ. He specifically says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for flesh he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Those of us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What he's saying is, we no longer are in the flesh. We are no longer trying to abide by the law and abide by the rules according to our flesh. But Jesus Christ came and opened the doorway so that we in the Spirit, those who are of the Spirit, those who are chosen by God, those who have received Christ, have received the Spirit of God, can now live in victory. And yet, for many of us, we don't. We continue to live in the cycle, falling into the same traps that the Israelites did. As we've looked at the story in the books of Judges, we've seen clear representations in their actions that manifest in our actions. We said in the first week of the series, that we find ourselves depending on our ability to live according to law instead of relying on the Spirit. Same thing that the Israelites did. The Israelites were just handed the law and said, now live up to it. And in their flesh, they couldn't. They continually fell into the trap. And we do the same thing because we keep trying to live according to our own flesh, according to some set of rules, according to some, some laws, and say, I'm going to do this, I can do this, I'm going to do this. And yet, because we are weakened in the flesh, not living by the Spirit, we continue to fall into sin. Second week of the series, we discovered that in the same way the Israelites were identifying with their sin, living in their sin, being defined by their sin, they became comfortable with their sin. And even when they were confronted with it and they knew it was wrong, they were so ashamed to go before God in true repentance that they just lived in their sin. That's something a lot of us do, right? It's one of the traps that we fall into as followers of Christ. And last week, as we looked at Gideon, we discovered something that the Israelites do that we do all the time. That we don't ever actually engage in true repentance. We feel regret for what has happened as a result of our sin. You remember last week we talked about 
how the Israelites, because the Midianites were doing so, were, were, were oppressing them that they so deeply that they couldn't plant their crops. They, they couldn't live in open, in open society. So they were living in, in caves and they were threshing their wheat so they wouldn't lose what little they had. And because of that, they felt they, 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 their lives were so hard that they cried out to God. But the moment that Gideon came and tore down the idols to Baal, they screamed about it. Because while they regretted what was happening to them as a result of their sin, they never really wanted to set aside the idols. They still continued to cultivate the, the, the altars of their idols while crying out to God. We do the same thing. We don't, we don't, we don't step in and say, I need to stop this. I, I need to repent of this. Simply because I know it's wrong. Simply because I know I shouldn't be doing it. Simply because I know that, that, that God is God. We play with our sin. We stay in our sin. And then when we have to pay a price for our sin, then we come before God. We see this a lot, don't we? So we find ourselves so often falling into the same trap as the Israelites. And so this book allows us to kind of examine our own walk with God and our own sinful hearts. We seem to have so much in common with the Israelites and judges. And so we end up in the same place, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. Well, today we return to the story of Gideon for our final lessons in this series. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Judges chapter 8. We pick up the story after Gideon has led the Israelites uh, on a total route of the Midianites. This is, that, this is that story of where God calls Gideon after he tore down the, 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 the altar of Baal. He, he finally calls Gideon and says, Gideon, I, I want to empower you. I want you to lead the Israelites into victory over the Midianites. And it's that story of where God solely wants Israel and solely wants Gideon to know it's going to be me, it's not going to be you. If you remember, Gideon puts the call out and he gets tens of thousands of people to show up in this army, this, this, these Israelites who are willing to go and fight the fight. And God says to Gideon, you got too many. And so he wheels it down to 10,000 and God says, you still got too many. And he whittles it down to 300. The whole idea behind this is God wants the Israelites to realize, I am the victor. I am the one giving this to you. I'm the one who's here. He's, he's trying to impress upon them the relationship he has with them. And so with those 300 people, they, they, they totally rout the Midianites. They find, win the final battle. They find themselves now in a place in which, in which they have peace, in which they, are, in, in which they are living in victory. And this is where we pick it up. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. They kind of got off there, didn't they? Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. 
for they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw it in it the earrings of the spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made baal Bareth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. Here we see the cycle alive, don't we? They found themselves in a difficult situation because of their sin. They cried out to God. God answered them in a miraculous way. And they got off again, and they wandered away, and they found themselves again away from God. Buried in this story is an extremely important lesson we have to learn if we are going to avoid a cycle of sin. See, what happened is the Israelites, as you read there, went to Gideon. They said to Gideon, we want you to be king. We want your sons to rule over them. They essentially were establishing the, the, type, of, the type of government that um, they saw around them. And Gideon said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. Because I'm not your king. I'm not going to rule over you. God's going to rule over you. And immediately he went to this, this, this plan. He went to this scheme. He went to this idea. Where he was going to build an ephod. Now the ephod is, is, representative, is representative of the ephod that we see in the temple of God set up by God himself. The ephod was the breastplate of, of, the, um, of the priest, the high priest. And God established the way in which the priest would wear this ephod. And it was jewels that represented the, um, the tribes of Israel. And in it were the ermine and the thumb, and which was the means by which Israel would know the will of God. The leaders of Israel would go to the to priests and say, we, we have a decision to make, we want to go in a direction. Could you, could you confer with the, ephod, the, uh, with the ephod, the ermine, the ermine and the thumb, and, and give us the direction of God? When the Israelites came to Gideon and said, I want to make you king, he seemingly made the right choice, right? No, God's going to be your king. But what he did is he decided that instead of being king, he would be the high priest. He essentially, instead of establishing himself as the civil authority, he decided he wanted to establish himself as a religious authority. Although God had established a means by which Israel would be led by going, to the, by going to the temple and going to the high priest that was ordained by God to find direction, Gideon said, I want to make one of my own, and I want it here in my hometown. And I want people to have to come here to find out what God wants to do. Gideon changed the plan of God. 
Gideon changed the direction that God had given the instruction. Instead of obeying God in the way in which Israel was to be led, he came up with his own plan. And he says, this is what we're going to do. What does it say was the final outcome of Gideon's decision? It says it became a stumbling block to Gideon and to the people, and they hoard themselves for the ephod. And ultimately, they hoard themselves for Baal. As you, as you look at this story, we get, begin to see an approach, an idea, a way of living that Gideon chose that led to trouble. And it's a way of living we quite often choose ourselves that ultimately leads to trouble. Why did they get in trouble? What caused this? There's actually a couple of very clear issues illustrated here that we need to avoid. The first problem that Gideon illustrated that, that we too often emulate is that we justify our idolatry. And we do that in a couple of different ways. We, we do it, first of all, by making good things idolatrous things. And we do it simply by convincing ourselves that what we're doing is close enough. That our devotion is close enough. Look at what Gideon did. Gideon looked at his life, and Gideon started by saying, as they came to him and he said, I want you to be king. He says, no, 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 we're not, we're not going to do that. We're going to be more spiritual in what we do. We're going to take a spiritual path. We're going to, we're going to take a pathway that, is, that has the, that has the uh, trappings of being spiritual, that have the trappings of godliness. It looked really close to what God wanted, didn't it? It looked really close to how God wanted things done. And so he was able to look at this and he was able to say, no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not making myself king. I'm not setting myself up as king. I'll set myself up more as kind of the spiritual head of things. Gideon rejected the title of king, but he picked something up that had this appearance of godliness. It looked spiritual. It looked like his priorities were correct. But ultimately, he established an object of worship that undermined God's plan for God's people. He elevated an object of worship over the obedience to the instructions of God. God wants us to simply obey him. He doesn't want us to, to be successful at this and successful at that and accomplish this and accomplish that and somehow that makes us okay with him. He simply wants us to obey him. God set up a way for the Israelites to be led. God set up a way for, for him to be worshipped. And all he's saying is, do that. But Gideon had a different plan. He had a different idea. And he says, no, no, this will work. This will be good. 
We do the same thing with things in our lives. We elevate things above our relationship with God all the time. It's simply living in obedience to him, living in devotion to him. We do things that we think make us okay. We do it with our jobs. Our jobs can be a good thing. It's the way in which we provide for our family. It's the way in which we take care of those around us. We even give out of that. We even tithe out of that. And so we go and we invest all of our time and all of our efforts and all of our minds in working and working and working and working. And we set aside God, but we justify it and we look at it and we say, listen, this is good. I'm providing for my family. I'm giving money to the church even. But we don't invest our time in the things of God. We don't invest our time in the fellowship with, with, with other believers. We don't pour ourselves into the knowledge of God. We do it with our families. God has given us our families and he's made us mom and dad over our our kids and, and he's blessed us with this. And so we see this as a great gift from God. But we see ourselves investing in family, investing in family, investing in family, elevating our kids above our devotion to God. And we somehow convince ourselves that that's okay. We take good things and we make them the ultimate things. And ultimately, what we're doing is we are in living in idolatry. I do it, I've done it myself in my life. I've explained this before. I've told the story before. How easy it was for me to make ministry my God. How easy it was for me to pour all of my efforts into building the church and growing the church. 70-hour work weeks, not taking time off because people are dying and going to hell. And what am I going to do? Go on vacation? How noble, right? How incredibly God-centered, right? But see, God didn't put me on this earth as my sole purpose of being a pastor and building a church and growing a thing. I'm here to have a relationship with him, to know him. And that all became secondary to doing ministry because the church became my idol. We justify our idolatry by making good things, raising good things above God. He calls us to obedience. He calls us to live in fellowship with him. We justify our idolatry, and the truth is we need to look at our lives and ask ourselves if our singular devotion really is God, living for him and only him. And we justify our idolatry by saying our devotion is close enough. We, we sometimes are, are confronted by calls like this to a singular devotion, and we say, you know what, what I'm offering is close enough. It's good enough. The truth is God instructed the Israelites, and when he instructed the Israelites, this included Gideon, this included his family, this included all that were there at that time. God said, this is how I want you to worship me. I have established established the temple somewhere. I have, I have put my high priest there. I have put the altars of God there. 
I put the ephod there. If you're going to lead my people, you will go there and you'll receive direction. There is where my presence is. And Gideon said, I don't want to do that. That's too much. So he got an ephod and he put it in his hometown. Like that was enough for him. That was, that was good enough, right? I don't want to go through all the rigmarole you set up. I don't want to do all the things that you've established for me to do. I'll just put it here and then this will be where we go. We convince ourselves that the devotion we have, that the commitment we have is good enough. I, I go to church most Sundays. I don't, I don't need to get involved in community groups. I don't need to get to know people. I don't need to... Most of the time when we do worship, I'm willing to stand. I mean, I'm not going to actually worship or anything. But the music's okay. I throw $10 in the offering plate every couple weeks. We look at our lives and we think that our devotion is enough. And the reality is, God calls us to him singularly to give all of ourselves. There is no greater priority in the life of the believer than cultivating a relationship with our Heavenly Father. Do you know that? Nothing matters but that. Nothing's more important than that. And most Christians see their Christianity as this kind of sidelight. How much time do you actually spend in cultivating your relationship with your Heavenly Father? How much time do you spend in His Word? How much time do you spend in prayer? How much time do you spend in fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ who can hold you accountable to relationship with God? See, most of us think our Christianity is good enough. And the truth is, the further you hold God out, the more likely you are to fall back into a cycle of sin. Because as we'll discover as you walk through this, what you realize is that the issue is not, not acts of sin, it's depths of devotion. It's the relationship that God is concerned about. That's why both of these ideas, the, 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 the fact that we, that we make good things, idolatrous things, and, and, and we, we say our devotion is good enough, lead to the second thing that we see from Gideon. That we don't take our sin as serious as God takes it. Look at the description that is used by God. And God made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel poured after it there. When we read that the first time, did that word jump out at you? They hoard after it. And then he says... As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. It's not a light word, is it? They whored after it. They whored after the Baals. 
He speaks here of infidelity, of a breaking of covenant, of cheating with cheating against God. His people broke their covenant. And, and the thing you need to realize is this isn't the first time God uses this imagery of ultimate infidelity to describe their cycle of sin. In Exodus, God warns the people and says, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and when they whore after their gods. In Deuteronomy, God speaks to Moses and says of the Israelites, and this people will rise up and go a whoring after the gods of the strangers of the land. Whether they go to be among them and will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. And the terminology is used in Leviticus 19 and Leviticus 20, in 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. Over and over, he uses the imagery to graphically define God's sense of betrayal that his people are doing. Back in in Judges chapter 2, God says, They did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods. And just in case you think this is a concept relegated to Old Testament imagery applying to the establishment of altars to graven images, hear again the words of James in James chapter 4 when he talks about Christians with divided hearts. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. You adulterous people. This is a conversation. This is a message to us as Christians. You are violators of a covenant with God. And you need to understand something here. God's issue has always been a people of his own that pursue the passions, the desires, the values, the idols of those who do not know God. This is what he's talking about. It's really not about individual sin. It's about the fact that you've elevated the things of this world. You've elevated the things uh, 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 that the world values, that the world desires above the love you have for God. That's God's message to the church. It's that, it's that his people don't realize that they're to be set apart from the world for his purposes. And I'm telling you, this is a message that we need to hear. Do you understand the world has no hope in it aside from God? And it is amazing to me how often we as Christians fall into this trap of what the world values, what the world thinks is the answers. We should get on board with that. We should be working with that. We should be helping with that. Listen, honestly, any solution absent devotion to Jesus Christ It's just moving the deck chairs on the Titanic. That's the message of the church. I'm sorry. When I read the word of God, it says the answer is God. 
Not another plan, not another politician, not another program. The answer is Jesus Christ. And we as the church have gotten into this game of, 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 of having the same values, the same passions, the same ideas as the world. And God calls us adulterers. This was the idea when he calls the Israelites out for their infidelity. And this is the idea James calls Christians adulterers for when we share the passions of the world. As I said, it's not necessary to spell out individual sins. It's about analyzing your values, your pursuits, your desires, your passions. It, it might be blatant. It might be pornography or, or drunkenness or greed or selfishness. But ultimately, it is simply about loving the things of the world more than loving the things of God. That's spiritual idolatry. That's the spiritual whoring God calls out. Examine your heart. Examine your life. What do you love more than God? And that's where this terminology not only teaches us the seriousness of our violation of our covenant, it explains the nature of our covenant. It teaches us the nature of relationship we have entered into with God. It is meant to be a love relationship. It is meant to be a covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. This has always been the plan. This has always been the direction he's leading. From the beginning, what we understood about the pattern that was found in the Old Testament was that simply it was the law given to a bunch of people trying to live up to the law, and they failed over and over and over again. And it's why God then makes the declaration, I will make a new covenant with my people. It will be written on hearts of men not simply on tablets of stone. They will be my people and I will be their God. And this is what Jesus Christ said. This is a new covenant in my blood. You see, we've entered into a relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ, through the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. And he said, you're my people. It's not about do's and don'ts. It's not about laws written on tablets of stone. It's about a relationship with a God who gave him you everything because he loved you so much. And he asks for, from you a love that solidifies the covenant. See, I don't violate I don't violate the covenant that this ring represents. 
not because I'm afraid of what will happen to me if I do. Not because I'm worried that Lisa gets so mad at me that she'll shoot me. Not because I'm afraid that it'll end in divorce and she'll take half of everything I have. Imagine what that would be like in my relationship with my wife if I said to her, you know what? The reason I don't chase after the passions of my flesh with other women is because I, I, I'm really worried about what would happen if I did. I don't violate the covenant that this ring represents because I love my wife more than the passions of my flesh. It is a love relationship that keeps me tied to the covenant that I made. Let me ask you a question. What did God say? What did Jesus Christ say was the greatest of all the laws? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And he said, all of the rest of the laws are tied to that. Because when you love God more than you love this world, that's when the cycle is broken. As I walk through the book of Judges, what I realize is that ultimately the problem was they loved the world more than they loved God. And when I look at my own heart, and I look at the pattern I see in fallen Christians, it's that there are moments in my life where I love the world more than I love my Jesus. That is the admonition. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. But instead, we're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is the key to breaking the cycle of sin. Grow in your love of Christ. Make growing in the knowledge of him through his word, through prayer, through fellowship, through worship, through service. Through a true obedience with a singular focus. Your goal. And you will break the hold that sin has on you. Is he everything? Is he everything? Is he your greatest love? If he's not, you'll keep struggling. And this isn't something that you can just answer without looking at your own life and giving yourself completely in relationship to him. There is no relationship that's, that is sustained, that hangs on, that is not cultivated. 
I don't care how much you love your wife today. If you hold her at arm's length, over time you will fade away. That relationship will suffer. Are you devoted singularly to the covenant relationship you have with God?